Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, May 9th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Andrea Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, which is bringing the world's top professors right to your fingertips with over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more. The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. And best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without any pressure of homeworks or exams or anything like that. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering to you, our listeners, an 80% discount off the original price for one of its courses, Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this discount and to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So racism has been all over the news these past few weeks because one of the owners of an NBA team, Don Sterling, we all now know, made some pretty racist comments uh, to his girlfriend. So he actually went so far as to say that she shouldn't bring her quote unquote black friends to the games. This was this caused a huge uproar, of course, uh, so much so that the Clippers themselves protested by wearing their jerseys inside out during a playoff game, and it, the end result is that Don Sterling has now been banned for life from the NBA. So when this information was making the headlines, I immediately thought of the work of a good friend of mine, David Amodio, who is an associate professor at NYU. He's one of the stars of the emerging field of social neuroscience, which tracks how the brain can help us interact with each other, both appropriately and inappropriately, of course, in the case of Don Sterling. And in fact, his specialty is the science of prejudice. So I wanted to talk to Dave about how much of our brains is devoted to categorizing people, whether we all have a little bit of racism in us, and how do we fight against it? Uh, and when does it fail? In the case of Don Sterling, we have someone for whom it has made, you know, his, his racism has caused him a lot of trouble, and he really, really, really should have known better. 
So David Modio directs the New York University Social Neuroscience Lab, and he is also one of these young investigators that seems to win every single prize available to young investigators, including most recently the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers from the White House. So when I first asked him, how is it that we can study prejudice in the lab? This is what he had to say. The way that we usually study prejudice in the lab is to look at aspects of behavior that people have difficulty controlling. So they might say they think it's wrong to be prejudiced. They might write down on a questionnaire that they're positive in their attitudes towards black people, like we're talking about white participants in our studies. But when you give them a a behavioral measure of how they respond to pictures of black people compared with white people, that's when we start to see effects come out. So you're probably asking, well, how exactly then do they design these studies? Well, essentially, in this case, the participants had to categorize words. That is, they saw a word flash up on a screen and they had to say, is this positive or negative? And it turns out that when you see a black face and you're a white person uh, participating in the in the experiment, you are quicker to categorize negative words than positive words. And when you see a white face, the opposite is true. So even in this very kind of implicit measure of response times, how quickly can you respond to this categorization task that presumably has nothing to do with white or black faces? Uh, We see this bias already creeping in. Uh, So this is what I've I've been told is called implicit bias. Uh, And so it's important to emphasize that it's a different thing uh, than what got Sterling into so much trouble because he had an explicit bias, which is that you say it. Um, but it just goes to show that for every you know identifiable racist, there are all these latent undercurrents all around us, even among people who are have great hearts and they're trying their best uh, and whose conscious minds um, would rebuke and be disgusted by the idea of prejudice. And so I think this is an amazing contribution of psychology um, to tell us that this thing called an implicit bias exists and then to tell us how to study it. Yeah, and I'm not even sure how explicit it is in Don Sterling, because if you listen to the recordings, he tries to say, hey, I don't care what you do, you know, on your own time, just don't bring them to my game. So I, part of me wonders if he thinks that that's okay. Huh. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I thought it was explicit once you open your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, what's really interesting about Dave's work, too, is that he also studies uh, people like you and me who try very hard uh, to, you know, even though we know that we have these implicit biases that we can't do anything about, we try very hard to mitigate against them. And in fact, we often show an anxiety about appearing prejudicial. And that's something that Dave studies as well. Um, So, you know, I think all of this work is really interesting and it's important. And, you know, I'm sorry that Don Sterling is the one that brought it to light. But uh, I think it's really important to talk about it. Definitely. And at the end, we should talk about how people can test themselves uh, on these kinds of measures if, if they want to, if they want to know the truth. So, um, so that, that'll be our interview today. But first, let's cover some science in the news. So you probably noticed this is like the mega week for climate change news because the Obama administration released an 800 page plus document, which I have not read, but boy, I have searched through it for a lot of terms today. Um, And it's called the National Climate Assessment. And basically, this is a legally required report that has not always been delivered on time by our government, but it's legally required, uh, that tells you what global warming is doing to the places where you live, aka your backyard, the United States. And the answer is, it's jacking up our temperatures, it's driving more wildfires, droughts, all the rest. One thing very striking that the report says is that by 2100, 
a once in 20 year extreme heat day will occur once every two or three years for most of the nation. So in the past, national assessments like this have had a very checkered history. The first one came out at the very end of the Clinton administration and then was studiously ignored or worse by the Bush administration, which didn't even do its own full-scale assessment, although it was supposed to. Then, early in the Obama years, came an assessment in 2009, and people widely accused Obama and and his administration of not really wanting to talk about it or pay much attention to it. But that's what's so different this time, is, boy, are they talking about it. The president himself is giving interviews to TV meteorologists around the country about this report. Um, It was on the front page of the White House homepage, this big picture of the Earth, seen from space and then national climate assessment. And the Washington Post is reporting that President Obama really feels that, you know, his legacy is going to be judged on climate change and what he does. So it's a big, big change, even for the administration, which got accused of engaging in climate silence and not wanting to talk about the issue. Now it's totally the opposite. It's climate eloquence. And you have to be happy to see this happening. Yeah, I mean, it seems as though we're almost in a small golden age of awareness about climate change, or at least people talking about it. Now, you know, what are we going to do about it? That it was just still on seems Cosmos, to be a, too, you know. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think that's a coincidence that no. all of a sudden the president is happy to talk about it because it's just been on Cosmos and Cosmos is being viewed by many, many, many people in the country. It's, you know, in some ways, it's almost okay now to talk about it. Um, but we need to do something about it, too. And that'll be, it'll be interesting to see whether the administration actually does follow up with some real initiatives. Um, but, you know, it also, you know, in, in California, we've had, especially in San Francisco, a really warm winter, and, and it's been very nice. Uh, but, it, you know, it feels as though just using the availability heuristic that there is evidence of climate change, even, you know, every year. And so it's interesting now to see that maybe there is, it's not just the availability heuristic, that is, it's not just that we remember these these warm days or these, these uh, major weather events, but that there actually is something to the fact that um, these are increasing in, in frequency. Yeah. There, well, there's a lot of biases in how we perceive weather, but what one thing that this report is meant to achieve that you don't get from the other reports is that it's meant to make you actually feel that it affects you personally. Um, which is, uh, you know, psychologically speaking, the only way to get people to care, right? And um, global warming was distant because it was up in the atmosphere and it's like chemistry processes, like, okay, I I don't relate to that. And then it was distant because it was up in the Arctic and it was polar bears and like, okay, I definitely don't relate to that. But now it's actually, you know what, you know, that drought and that incredible heat you had in Texas in summer of 2011. Well, you know, they say this in the report, climate change basically doubled the chance of that happening. You know, so that's actually pretty specific. And uh, it should open some minds, we hope. Yeah, I just think, though, that what to do about it seems just as far out of reach. I mean, you know, how how can I change this massive, you know, world climate change thing? I feel like as a person, it's hard to know what you can do as an individual that actually is going to make a difference. That's always been the problem, most infamously captured by the fact that at the end of Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, it basically says, like, turn the lights out. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, my God, this is the biggest letdown in history. I, I, I turn the lights out now after seeing this. But the president, I mean... I mean, the reason that so much attention is being paid to this is that it's part of a suite of executive actions that are being taken, most notably using um, the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, 
that uh, that do have teeth, and you could argue, and I, I would argue, that this is bigger than any one person. You need the actual regulatory actions, and that though we can take change in our own life, but it's not going to be enough. And so this is part of something that's going to have some teeth, although it's going to be a real fight. And, you know, one thing that you can do as an individual now as a bit of a segue um, moving into a different direction is actually help in data analysis these right. days. Um, there are some scientists who are using uh, the crowd you know, to help them figure out some of these major issues in, in science, in particular in neuroscience. So um, you might have heard about the protein folding video game. There was a game in which you could um, spend your time trying to fold a protein and that sort of helped. Yeah, I uh, spent a, a hours of... on it. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, no, well, okay. if you're geeky, yeah. you, you know, you yeah. can find these things <laughs> online and you can, you know, work with, uh, with scientists to help them figure out how proteins are folded. But in this case, uh, there was another problem that needed to be solved using a crowd. And uh, the scientist, the, the lead author of this study is Sebastian Sung of Connectome fame. So he's really been interested in, you know, the various, the way that the brain cells are connected and how, you know, our mind or, or our, our in, um, experience uh, emerges from that co- connectivity. So there was one uh, problem in particular that ha- needed to be solved. And that is that, you know, did you know that the only part of your brain that's visible to the outside world is your eyeball, right? So there are actually like hmm. bits of blobs of your brain, it's considered brain matter that all of us can see. So, you know, it, it, the, the eyes being, uh, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. the window to the soul gives that a whole new meaning, right? It's actually a window into your brain. But in any way, at the back of your eyeball, there's your retina, of course, and that's where the light gets translated into electrical impulses. And there's a series of intricately connected cells in this retina that hasn't really been well understood. In fact, one thing that they didn't understand is how the retina itself can detect motion. So it's not just that in higher up parts of your brain that we can detect that's where motion gets processed, but your retina can actually tell if an object is moving. Um, and, and people thought that the, the way that these cells can detect motion is through their connectivity, but it was so complicated that any single lab couldn't really figure out how each of these cells is connected. So Sebastian Sung outsourced this problem, and he developed a video game in which people had to essentially color branches of different cells, and if they got the branch right, they sort of, you know, unlocked the the cell, uh, and so that was kind of the, the prize in the game. And enough people did this where then they could actually map out how all of these cells are connected, and it turns out that the way that these cells are connected indicates how they're able to perceive motion. Um, so essentially, there are some cells that uh, fire very quickly when there's when there's they detect a, a motion or they fire very slowly, and how they're all connected uh, is is how the brain can then decide which direction the motion is going in. Uh, so it's it's pretty cool finding, and I think that um, what's really exciting is that this is citizen science at its best, right? Citizen scientists are getting involved in the data analysis part. Oh no, this is this is so cool. It's such an amazing story, and we we hear a lot about citizen science. You know, it's it's a phrase, but I feel like it's something that you know, your instinct is sometimes to belittle because some of the associations are like, oh, you know, they did the Christmas bird count in their backyard or something, <laughs> or, you know, or they, oh, you know, they, they tried to help find E.T. Um, but like, you know, this, this is, this is a much higher level, right? I mean, they're finding, they have to go out and find, if I understand this right, people who, who have the aptitude, you know, people who can actually do this kind of thing, and they have to find a lot of them. 
right? Yeah, I mean, that is true. But I would also, I, I want to just say, too, that those people searching for ET, you know, any any astronomer will tell you that amateur astronomers really have made, uh, you know, inroads in, in what, how our understanding of, of the cosmos. Okay, maybe I should um, retract. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you want to see what the video game looks like, and it actually looks pretty cool, you can go to our Facebook page, uh, and we'll post the video there, and, and you can see... And I am not smart enough to play it, by the way. But I was just looking at this. I'm like, oh my god, spatially, like, how, what is, what is going on here? It's so, it, it seems so complex. So, I mean, that's the achievement well, of finding people who can do this. Yeah, I mean, mental rotation is going to be something that you're going to need to do this game. <laughs> yeah. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with David Amodio. So if you listen to Inquiring Minds, and you do, then chances are you're the kind of person that never, ever wants to stop learning. And that's why here at the show, we're big fans of The Great Courses. The Great Courses has been in production for over 20 years, offering engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their field. So we recently watched one of their courses called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation, which is by the Eastern philosophy professor Mark Musi of Rhodes College. This is a course that I just checked out because lately I've been dealing with a problem that, probably familiar to you, I'm beset by email, by text messages, and an endless string of distractions. I try to multitask and I totally fail. And I just feel inside there's something wrong with the pace and the distraction involved in how I'm trying to live. And I, I bet that sounds familiar. Yeah, I mean, it turns out we're all pretty bad at multitasking, despite the fact that right. we think we're good at it. Uh, and in this course, you'll learn how mindfulness, when correctly practiced, offers deep and lasting benefits for mental functioning and emotional health. Now, the science here is relatively new, but there are some pretty compelling data that the mindfulness meditation practice is really quite effective. Um, it, it, you know, it's even in physical health and well-being, um, in addition to sort of your cognitive functioning, how it helps you focus, slow down and just appreciate the now, which we all need to do more of. And one important thing about this is that you don't have to be religious to get into mindfulness meditation. You can practice it in a totally secular way. It has nothing to do necessarily with spiritualism. Right. And for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. You can order this course, Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a short time, so do not wait. Go to the following URL, thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. And once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash Inquiring Minds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, David Amodio. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on the show. And just for full disclosure to our listeners, Dave and I are old friends. Uh, we were both at UCLA together, so this is a wonderful reunion for both of us. So in the past few weeks, racism has been in the headlines, largely thanks to a number of statements made by the L.A. Clippers owner Don Sterling, who essentially chastised his girlfriend for bringing African-Americans to the game. Now, obviously, this had a huge public outcry. The players themselves protested by wearing their jerseys inside out before a playoff game. And the NBA responded by banning him for life. And so this story reminded me of your work on the neuroscience of prejudice. And so I'm really interested to hear your thoughts today on how ingrained prejudice is in our society and what we can do to mitigate against it. Sure. Happy to talk about this. 
So let's start by first defining prejudice. At least, how do psychologists distinguish prejudice from, say, um, racism or stereotyping, etc.? Are we all talking about the same thing here, or are there some nuances that we should know about? Sure. These are all forms of what we'd call intergroup bias. So it's just some form of a negative attitude or generalized thinking about people who are from some different group. And it could be based on any kind of category, you know, people from other races or ethnicities or genders or other kinds of preferences. Um, within psychology, one of the more important distinctions has to do with prejudice being um, often affective in nature, whereas stereotypes um, tend to re refer to conceptual associations. So they might not be so affectively charged, emotionally charged, but they might have to do with the um, attributes and traits that you, you link to a certain group. They usually work together, but this is uh, one important distinction that we have in psychology. So is there a way to discriminate um, from you know, between different groups that is adaptive for us, that, that you know, is something that is helpful rather than hurtful in our society? Well, sure. Adaptive is interesting. It depends, depends on who it's adaptive for. Most people agree that the mind has evolved in a way to see categories and things, and that's just the way that we make, we make sense of information around us. Um, but when it comes to people, there's a lot of variability, a lot of complexity, and these simple categories often break down. So that's where it becomes maladaptive. Now, um, another way of asking that question, though, about whether it's adaptive has to do with um, who you are and where you are in a hierarchy. So you might also think that it, it's pretty adaptive to be prejudiced and to use a lot of stereotypes if you're the person in power, because this is, I mean, this is if you're, um, if you don't care about being fair to other people. So if you're in power and you want to keep that power, it might be adaptive to you. Um, for a lot of other people, it, it leads to discrimination and injustice. And then also in a broader sense, nowadays we have, um, societies that are interdependent. That is, there's a lot of a lot of people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and groups. And for society to work well, you really need people who can get beyond these categories. And so I guess at a societal level, especially in today's diverse society, things like prejudice and stereotyping could be really maladaptive. So in the past, you could argue that as the white man in particular had a seat of power in sort of the last few hundred years, that it, it was sort of in some ways helpful for him to, you know, discriminate against other groups, especially those who looked so unlike him and uh, that were um, subordinate. So, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, most of us think of racism. The first thing we think about is white versus black. And uh, especially, obviously, now with this, these Don Sterling comments. So in some ways, is this something that has culturally evolved? Or is this something that because sort of physically a white person and a black person look so different, is that where we're coming from? Or is it, is it cultural? That's, I guess, the question I'm asking is to what extent is this something that um, has, has permeated uh, human society for thousands of years versus hundreds of years? Yeah, great question. So this idea that we see people in terms of categories, that's been, that's been happening as long as there's been a human mind, I imagine. In terms of the specific groups, you're right. In America, given our history, um, the most salient racial distinction uh, in terms of prejudice has been white and black. Um, you know, we shouldn't leave. There's a lot of other folks who experience discrimination. There's an awful lot of disparities with Latinos in particular. Um, 
Asians, there's other types of discrimination, but they're, they're often thought of as a group that hasn't experienced as much discrimination. Interestingly, getting to your, your idea that there's a lot of cultural influences here. Um, if you look at American history, the specific groups that seem to be most targeted by white Americans' prejudices have changed over the years. And so you can, you know that there have been waves of immigrants, so there are times when the Irish was were the bottom of the barrel, or the Italians, or the Jews, or you can name your group. Um, uh, there are certain political events that occurred that um, placed the this, uh, onus on Mexicans. And However, another, th- another point that you made, though, is that um, the difference in white and black race is is visually salient. And so probably one thing that's happened over the years is that European settlers to America, um, over a couple of generations, they assimilated. And after, after those generations, you know, it's hard to tell the difference. But white and African-Americans, um, I'm sure the differences in skin color has played a role in, in just how it's been propagated. So I want to talk a little bit later about some of the work that you've done in which you've pitted um, sort of people who look more alike or more different against each other and, and sort of seen in, in terms of pictures of faces and seen the effect that just that sort of visual look has on people's behavior. But first, I want to talk a little bit about how do you study prejudice or racism in the lab? Because I imagine, you know, someone who comes into your lab to participate in your experiments, you know, none of us want to think that we're racist. We don't, you know, we're, we, we fight against our prejudices in today's society. And, and most of us hope that we're not at all racist. Although, you know, I think it'd be naive to think that, you know, these prejudices are not somehow ingrained in every single one of us. So how do you get people to show their prejudicial behavior in the lab? That's a great question, too. So you're right. On one hand, it seems like in, in modern American society, there are laws against discrimination. Um, you find that a lot of people have egalitarian attitudes, that is, attitudes that we should treat people fairly and um, that it's wrong to be prejudiced. At least that's what they, that people believe consciously. And um, at least that's what people also want others to think that they believe. Um, but when you probe a little deeper, you see an awful lot of prejudice, I guess in two different ways. One way that is not really what you're asking about is just in, in the institutions, in the way that the law is working. So there are, there are many layers of law in our country. And uh, I think there are a lot of institutional structures that you can point to that seem to promote various kinds of, of bias and discrimination. At the more micro end of these things, the way that we usually study prejudice in the lab is to look at aspects of behavior that people have difficulty controlling. So they might say they think it's wrong to be prejudiced. They might write down on a questionnaire that they're positive in their attitudes towards black people, like we're talking about white participants in our studies. But when you give them a a behavioral measure of how they respond to pictures of black people compared with white people, that's when we start to see effects come out. So one example might be a computer task where People are, our participants are told that it's a simple task. All you have to do is look at the computer and words will pop up on the screen. And there's, there are either positive words or negative words. And we'll tell them your task is just to press a button that, you know, categorize these words as they come up as either being positive or negative. Um, But the trick in this kind of task is that right before each word appears, we flash a picture of a face and it's either the face of a white person or a black person. 
And what we find over and over again in the literature is that if a black person's face was shown really quickly, then people are, are quicker at categorizing negative words than positive words that follow it. Versus if a white uh, face was, was shown really quickly, people are usually quicker to categorize the positive words compared with the negative words. So we've used variations on, on this sort of task um, to show one kind of behavior, uh, behavioral form of prejudice that's difficult for people to control. I'll add it's hard for them to control because these tasks are set up so that you know everything happens quickly and people don't even realize that they need to control. And even if they wanted to control any expression of bias, um, how would you do it when you're just classifying words as positive or negative? And what we're measuring is is how quickly they do it, and this is on the order of milliseconds. So we create these tasks that um, pick up on these subtle forms of bias. And, and then one thing in addition to note, though, is that even though it's subtle, you know, we're talking um, tens of milliseconds that might differentiate responses in these types of categorizations. I and other researchers in the field have shown that um, the extent to which a subject shows that bias on a task like this does predict how they act in behaviors. Might you know you might take that same person and then have them meet with either uh, a white or a black interaction partner, and they'll show nonverbals that suggest they're they're less comfortable with the black person, greater anxiety. Um, we even have a study that shows that they'll sit further in a row of chairs away from the jacket and backpack of a of what they think is a black person. That's amazing. So the person's not even in the room and they are already showing behavioral changes with regards to that that person. Yeah, and, and others have begun to show how this plays out in um, like the doctor's office. So doctors who will really insist that they don't have any bias, and it might be totally true, like, you know, consciously they, they really think it's wrong to be prejudiced, but nevertheless, they might have this subtle association in their mind between black people and negative things. And to the extent they do, um, it relates to how much time they spend in, the, in an appointment with a black patient compared with a white patient and the, the types of prescriptions they, or diagnoses they give. And it also has implications for how the black patient experiences their, their meeting with the doctor. And so one idea is that this might lead black patients to feel like less well cared for and less well accepted by the doctors and then less willing to want to come back for follow-ups. Hmm. And do you think that that might explain in some ways how there might be more skepticism amongst the black community of, of the medical field, given that how, you know, how prevalent white doctors are? Very well could. This, that, that starts to get outside my area of expertise, but um, I think that's one sure. of the ideas. It's probably one of, of several related factors. So have you seen whether this kind of behavior goes both ways? That is, what, what about if the shoe is on the other foot uh, when black people are looking at white faces? Do they also show a negative bias or is there some other experience? Yeah, I haven't done these studies myself, but there is research that included uh, black subjects, African-American students primarily, maybe community members too. And the general story is that Black Americans show a similar pattern of anti-black bias, not not to the same extent as white Americans, um, and not not all blacks show this. But there's enough variability, and what the the evidence converges on is this idea that these biases are not not necessarily um, reflecting your personal animus towards an, another group. It has a lot to do with just growing up in a society where certain messages are all around you, and you really can't avoid. Um, you know, media or, or 
other kinds of representations of blacks as being you know, in stereotypical ways, like blacks as being more dangerous or in gangs or less intelligence, things like that. So what we think is that these computerized tasks pick up on general knowledge that isn't necessarily endorsed by a person. And that's why you might find it in African-American subjects as well as white subjects. So what's really interesting about to me about this work is that it really gets to the question of just because something is implicit or that we can see a brain basis, which I want to talk about in a minute, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not cultural, uh, that it's not something that, you know, we can, it's, it's not something we're born with. I mean, do you see these same behaviors in, in very young children? Or is there something that comes with experience? Um, you, you do start to see them in young children emerging. Um First of all, gender uh, attitudes start to emerge around four or five. At least that's when they seem to be measurable. And then, although, again, this is out of my immediate area, researchers start to see effects for race shortly after, though there's even some evidence that it might that it might happen earlier. You know, even babies who are really used to seeing their, the mother who's of the same race might react differently to uh, people from other ethnicities. The question about culture um, kind of gets to the nature-nurture issue that that is always so interesting to think about in science. And everything in the brain reflects our cultural experience, just as it does any innate experiences. And I think what, what you have is a mind supported by um, innately, in a way, by a brain that is set up to see patterns in the world and, re, and to react to them. But you can fill in the specific players in those patterns based on culture. So you might have completely different groups that um, that are discriminated against in other cultures. And we study this primarily in America. That's just where a lot of the action is in this field. And it just happens to be that uh, white, white majority group members and um, targets of discrimination who are black tend to be the key players. So as you've described it, prejudice, of course, is a relatively complex phenomenon. So it's not totally surprising that there's more than one brain region involved. Uh, so I want to ask you a little bit about what, what is the network in the brain that seems to underlie prejudice and, and sort of what are the regions that are involved? Sure. Um, prejudice is very complex, as you just said. And so research on neuroscience has really tried to understand uh, how different regions of the brain might contribute to different aspects of prejudice. In a sense, Looking at the brain is like getting under the hood of your car and, and pulling apart the different mechanisms that make up what appears to be just one kind of behavior. And so um, my lab and several other labs in our field have, have over the past 10 years or so really tried to probe underlying brain areas for their role in, in prejudice and stereotyping. Um, a network in the brain is a way that we describe um, how several different um, specific structures might work together to produce more complex behavior. So I mentioned earlier that prejudice, while complex, is most simply thought of as like an affective response or at least um, an, an attitude, like positive or negative, that you might have towards somebody from another group. And as you'd expect, researchers in my field have first looked to areas of the brain that are involved in affect and attitudes. For example, the amygdala is a structure that's in the brain. It's located in the temporal lobes, and it's a small structure that's shaped like an almond, and that's where it gets its name from. And this is an interesting region of the brain because it's been known from, from prior studies of learning in, in rats and mice that it responds very quickly to stimuli that might be threatening in one's environment, such that um, 
information coming in the eye that is encoded as potentially threatening can activate the amygdala before the organism is even fully aware of what's what's going on, like fully cognitively processing it. And this initial threat can get the body ready to act, gets the heart beating, gets the autonomic nervous system going, it, it gets that fight or flight response going. And so the amygdala in particular was was thought of as a strong candidate for this automatic kind of prejudice that I described earlier that we measure with these computer tasks. So an awful lot of research is focused on the role of the amygdala in this emotional form of prejudice. Other parts of the brain, though, that likely play a role are the insula. This is a, a region, especially the anterior insula. There's the more frontal part of that in the brain. Um, this is a, a brain region that's been associated with feeling states, like that visceral feeling that you get during an emotion. And you, you might experience this um, with disgust or even extreme hatred. And so there's more attention being paid to that part of the brain. Um, the striatum is also an, an area of the brain that's involved in reward processing and uh, goal-directed responding. Um, this part of the brain has been active in, in studies when subjects have been looking at members of their own group or, or liked individuals. So, you know, prejudice, we've talked about the negative aspects of it, but prejudice can also come out in terms of preferential treatment towards your own group members. So let's talk a little bit about these sort of what what are some in some ways the parts of the brain that are that engage in what we think of as automatic behaviors, right? So they they they're sort of outside of our consciousness, and then you know layered on top of that, you can have parts of the frontal lobe which then are going to be involved in regulating these behaviors, right? So that's sort of the conscious side where we can tamp down the activity of this sort of unconscious processing happening in our brain, and and then make decisions that lead to behaviors that are not racist, even though we might have that first gut initial racist response. Is that, is that an accurate way of describing the way these, this network might work? Sort of. That's definitely a way that it, that's been described in the past. Though one of the benefits of taking a neuroscience approach to prejudice is I think it's starting to um, give us an evolved understanding of how all this plays out. So yeah, like I mentioned, there are a couple of regions of the brain that are thought to act really quickly and they, they don't require conscious deliberation, like the amygdala is one of the areas. There are also other regions of the brain that are involved in encoding objects and vision and um, activating stored knowledge about those, those objects. These are regions of the temporal lobe in particular. And those neural processes do tend to work without conscious deliberation. All right? They kind of go on in the background and if left unchecked, you know, they might lead to the expression of some bias in a way that you don't intend. Some of the work that I've done has tried to understand that transition between an automatic response like that and then um, how that triggers uh, more deliberative or controlled kinds of processing. So it's that transition between automaticity and control. And to get at the more controlled aspects of this response, it looks like what we think from research so far is that regions of the frontal cortex, especially um, a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate. This is a, a part of the medial frontal cortex that wraps around the corpus callosum. Um, I guess you got to bring out your brain atlas and check out where all these parts of the brain are. And other parts of the, the lateral and medial frontal cortex or prefrontal cortex are involved in detecting when there seems to be an, an automatic response that's out of line with your intentions. And then also involved in kind of switching you out of this automatic mode of responding and into more of a deliberative 
mode of responding. It's almost like going from autopilot to taking control of the steering wheel and your behavior. One suggestion, though, that you made is that these uh, more frontal parts of the brain, prefrontal cortex, for example, once it comes online, it has to tamp down the bias. That's actually something that we haven't seen good evidence for. And the more we look into it, the more it appears that the way the regulation of bias works, the regulation of prejudice works, is that rather than directly turning down the these automatic processes in the brain, what seems to really go on is that these frontal cortical regions take control of the expression of behavior. And they also seem to shape the way we attend to stimuli in our, in our environment. So instead of um, trying to turn down the source of the bias, these regulatory mechanisms really take control of how we express ourselves. So, you know, although even though we're talking about sort of automatic or implicit activity in the amygdala and, and insulin striatum, etc., we're not talking about necessarily something that we're born with, again, getting back to this nature versus nurture question, because, of course, the amygdala is involved in fear conditioning. That is, it's a learned fear response. So I just want to make, make that point out there, too. But then I want to get back to this, this idea of regulation of these biases. And what, one of my fears is that if we talk about this work and we talk about how this prejudice or this racism sort of is is in the brain and that it's outside of consciousness can someone like George Zimmerman then use that as an argument for why he should be not guilty of shooting Trayvon Martin yeah this is a huge issue um, so let me let me back up and address a couple of parts of the of your question that are really interesting so first of all as you said the amygdala has been involved in fear conditioning it's a learning mechanism a lot of the different mechanisms that underlie uh, this automatic prejudice or automatic stereotyping are learning and memory mechanisms. And that's interesting because learning is learning is something that you can't really control. It's like if you're driving down the highway and you see a car accident, you can't unsee that. Same with memory. It's like a sponge. Um, your, your mind is all, always soaking stuff up and you cannot, without a lot of effort, you can't really control what goes into it. You, what goes into it is what you're exposed to and what most people in our society is exposed to are exposed to is just that information that's out there that 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 includes a lot of stereotypes and biases so the fact that these implicit prejudice and stereotypes are built on learning and memory mechanisms suggests that it is cultural in part and it's also not it's not innate in that way the information that's coming in is not innate we've got to learn that and it's just what we're exposed too. Now, one one small addendum is that you can choose to expose yourself to certain things, you know, depending on where you put yourself. So certainly there are people who choose based on their ideology or whatever to um, hang out with more or less egalitarian groups. Um, moving to the regulation issue, though, humans are extremely adept at regulating their behavior. I mean, that's what all that frontal cortex is for. Um, humans, more than in any other species, especially our closest species among apes, is that we have a much more expanded prefrontal, anterior prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of the brain that's most important for regulating complex behaviors. So I don't really think humans have any good excuses for acting on their automatic biases. Now, in terms of George Zimmerman, could he ever use these automatic biases as an excuse? You know, it's it's probably been tried. The fact is he doesn't have to act anything out. So the our regulatory abilities are what basically are us choosing to do something or not do something 
cases like like Zimmerman's and like others like it, they're always complex with so many things going on. I, I mean, in his case, the choice to uh, hang out in his car in a gated neighborhood with a gun is probably um, part of the problem. And then there are a lot of other things that he could have chose to do differently. If his if his prefrontal cortex wasn't working properly, he he wasn't deciding properly, and so yeah, the the line between in, intention and and automatic behavior in those situations can get blurry. But I don't know. I personally, I think that with the kind of regulatory ability that we have, it's hard to make a case that your brain made you do it. I totally agree. And that's partly why I sort of bristle whenever I hear this, the free will argument that some neuroscientists seem to make that we we don't have free will. It's just, you know, our brain is, is acting outside of our ability to choose what it does. Yeah, that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the relationship between the brain and the mind, as as you well know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Let, let me know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> the brain is the mind. Um, <laughs> we make choices. And guess what? It's our brain making those choices. Everything that we think is in the brain. There's nothing that's not in our brains that we experience. So um, there's just this, you know, long-standing uh, duality of the mind and brain and physical physicality and the the soul. And there's a legacy of that still in our thinking. But I think modern neuroscience is is showing, you know, with without exception, that everything in our experience has roots in our brain. And in fact, there's some of your work, I think, that really speaks to this question, albeit in an indirect way. And that is the study in which you describe that um, sometimes when your participants have a particular goal that doesn't align easily with race, uh, we see a different signature of activity in the amygdala. So can you talk a little bit about that study? Right. In one of the studies that we ran, we looked at how assigning a person to one or another group based on the most arbitrary of reasons was enough to lead them to um, process pictures of people they thought were of their group or the other group differently. So in our study, we looked at um, a very early neural signature of face processing. It's basically the first um, stage in your brain at, at which your brain identifies an object as a human face, another fellow human. And we found that that signature signal was stronger when people thought they were looking at members of their own group compared with faces representing members of a different group. So even at that really early stage of neural processing, um, group category matters. There was another study that was conducted by one of my colleagues, Jay Van Bavel, where they brought participants into the MRI scanner, and these were white subjects, um, and they were looking at faces of black and white males. Okay, And so based on some past work, they thought that they might see greater amygdala activity early on when subjects view black male faces compared with white male faces. This is something that's been shown in the past, um, including in some of my own work, and it's been thought to reflect a a signature of implicit prejudice. However, they had an interesting twist in this study, and that's that they also assigned subjects to be on a a sports team. So they were either in the Eagles or the Tigers or something like that. And these teams cut across the race of the of the people that they were viewing. So their team, the Tigers, had um, black and white players on it, and the other team was also composed of black and white players. And what they found was that once there are those coalitions, those teams, the amygdala was more responsive to their own teammates and less responsive to members of the other team, and there were no differences for race anymore. That was a really interesting study because it suggests that the amygdala is really tuning into what's most important for you at the moment. In some cases, the amygdala is going to respond 
more strongly to threatening cues, threats in the environment. But in this situation, I mean, it was a relatively safe context from the subject's point of view. Coalitions and team memberships are more important. And that's, that's why they think they saw greater amygdala activity to looking at one's own team members. Sure. It's a fascinating study. And, you know, of course, it also underscores the fact that the amygdala is a relatively complicated brain region. It's, you know, made up of many different nuclei and, and each one sort of has, has different roles in the brain. So, you know, often we see the media say, hey, look, the amygdala is active. That means that this person is showing fear, which is obviously an, a huge oversimplification. And it also, you know, really makes it mind boggling that someone like Don Sterling would have these racist views about black people, given, you know, the field that he's in and the fact that, you know, he really should be aligning himself with teams rather than uh, races, especially in, in, in terms of basketball. But um, that's an aside. I, I want to just touch on very briefly, um, sort of the, the, you have this three pronged look at, um, prejudice and, and how it might have a, how it's, how it's represented in the brain. And so, you know, you've, you've got, we, we've talked about the amygdala and the sort of fear conditioning response. Uh, we've also talked about this sort of goal driven response, um, just now in terms of when you align yourself with a particular coalition with, in, in turn, like with a sports team, um, you know, you, you see a different pattern of, of activity that's, you know, related to in-group, out-group differences. But there's another way in which you've seen uh, people react prejudiciously um, in terms that, that involves anxiety about their own prejudice. So talk a little bit about, you know, the work that you've either you've done or your colleagues have done about people who are anxious about being prejudiced. Yeah. So these days, a lot of people, a lot of white Americans, especially disavow prejudice. So they think it's wrong to be prejudiced towards members of other groups. But they still have this gut level feeling, which is, which we attribute to implicit bias, you know, like a gut level negative feeling when they interact with other people. On top of that, they also have this anxiety that if they're going to have an interracial interaction, that that implicit prejudice that, that might exist somewhere in their mind is going to come out and influence them and they're going to come off as being prejudiced. This kind of anxiety has been studied in a lot of different ways. Um, what, what's been found in actual interactions between, say, a, a white research subject and um, uh, a black study partner is that the white subjects might act in ways that show discomfort. And um, so they might be kind of awkward in their interactions compared with when they are with a, another white person. And this awkwardness can be perceived as, as potentially as animosity, or at least doesn't come across so positively. And um, so there's been a lot of attention to how this kind of anxiety can um, either enhance the expression of implicit bias or just what it does in, in interracial interactions. One thing that I thought was interesting is when you consider the, the neural underpinnings of implicit bias, like I mentioned, it, some of these brain structures are important for affect and implicit prejudice. And the amygdala in particular is one. So the amygdala, like you, you said, is involved in processing threats as well as several other things. And it's been associated with anxiety-related responses too. One thing the amygdala doesn't do is high-level cognition and conceptual associations, kinds of things like stereotypes. So that gave us the idea that when people are feeling anxious, just socially anxious about an, about an upcoming interracial interaction, we might find that implicit prejudices are especially more activated compared with stereotype associations. And that's that's what we found in one series of studies 
we've also found that besides making that implicit prejudice a little more strongly engaged when, when they're anxious, that anxiety could also have effects on how people regulate their bias. So I briefly mentioned that um, regulating your behavior, especially like not showing prejudice if you don't want to, involves um, at least two major processes. One is just detecting when you need to engage control. So detecting that there's a possibility that you might be biased. Um, another is actually implementing what you're intending to do. Okay, so detection versus implementation, you might say. What we found, at least this is pretty suggestive, is that anxiety, well, let me back up. People often think that anxiety undermines control. So when you're anxious, you, it just messes you up. And there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence for that. Usually what it, the deal is that a little bit of anxiety is good. It, it gives you the arousal you need to, to perform well, but too much anxiety is going to be harmful. Um, what we found is that when people become anxious that they might show prejudice um, and they don't want to remember, that anxiety seems to make them hypervigilant for detecting that they might need to control. And so they're especially good at, at figuring out that something's wrong, they need to exert more control. But at the same time, that hypervigilance seems to come at a cost. And so they they also seem like they're worse at implementing an actual response. So they're they're good at detecting it, but they become worse at implementing it. Hmm. So, uh, so are you suggesting that maybe Don Sterling was just really bad at implementing it, or that he just didn't <laughs> detect it from the beginning? Well, I'm talking about well-meaning subjects who actually think it's wrong to be prejudiced. Don Sterling sounds like he's an old-fashioned bigot. <laughs> so, I I don't think that he had any. I don't. Maybe actually, we do have some other research that looked at when people are trying to control prejudice because they really internally wanted to versus when they're in a situation where they're controlling it because they, they just didn't want to show their prejudice to other people. And as you can imagine, when you're only trying to control it because you don't, you're worried about what other people might think, people are usually less efficient at this. And I don't know, we speculated, we didn't actually test this, but uh, anxiety might really undermine that. But again, in Sterling's case, he, he didn't seem very anxious about it. He just seemed like a disinhibited racist. But that's just me talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. But so that that begs the question then, and this will be my last question. Um, you know, we can't control our past, what we've been exposed to. We can control what we expose our children to, of course, and how we model behavior. But we can't we can't control what happened to us. So what do we do if we don't want to be racist or discriminatory? Um, how can our society be set up such that, you know, this is something that goes away with time as we become more of a global world? Right. Um, it's a difficult issue, especially given how much of these stereotypes and prejudices become ingrained in our in our memory, especially at at implicit levels of awareness. So like unconsciously, that is. Um, so it's a challenge. There are several things I think that can be done, though. So the first thing is to make people aware that that unconscious biases exist. And there have been great efforts among the psychology community and then branching out into the general public to do this because you find that a lot of people in the general public don't realize that a lot of things happen unconsciously and actually influence their behavior. So being aware that it might even happen is the first step. Once you have awareness, there's a, a lot of work in social psychology especially that has tried to come up with interventions where they, they raise awareness that bias might happen and then 
give people strategies so that when they when they come into a situation, there's a cue in, in the situation that tells them that it's possible they they could be biased, and this might just be like the fact that you're interacting with somebody from another group. You could try to use strategies to be more careful and thoughtful, or to focus your attention more on the task at hand as opposed to focusing on the the fact that you're from different groups. These are all kind of uh, works in progress, though, in terms of finding something that really works and is widely applicable. But these are these are the kind of strategies that would work for individuals. You also mentioned, though, that aspects of our society have bias built into them, and that's another issue. I mean, that's a that's a huge challenge, changing the institutions and just the structure of our of our society to um, try to promote well. You don't even need to promote diversity so much as just treat everyone fairly. So that's, I think, the stuff that I do is really trying to understand what happens at an individual's level. Um, there are a lot of other great scientists who are trying to understand what happens at the societal level. All that said, again, when that question comes up of whether Sterling was just, or George Zimmerman was just a victim of his own brain, um, if you just look around, you find that almost everybody in American society has knowledge of stereotypes. They show evidence that they have these associations in their mind and, of course, in their brains. But so many of us are just fine at trying to regulate these things and not express them and work hard to try to be egalitarian. So again, the human mind is extremely adept at control and re regulation. And the fact that we have these biases should really be seen as as like an opportunity for us to be aware and do something about them. And certainly not um, necessarily going to have to determine how we act in every situation. Yeah, and luckily, you know, proportionally, we have more frontal cortex than virtually any other species. <laughs> so uh, that's good for us. And so we should use that frontal cortex wisely and not behave um, like, you know, reptilian as, as Don Sterling did. <laughs> so thanks very much for being on Inquiring Minds, David Amodio. You're welcome. That was a lot of fun. So I got to say, at the end of this interview, I was wanting, and I think listeners will be too, to know even more uh, than we heard about solutions. And I mean, not personal solutions. Personal solutions mean mo essentially monitoring yourself, right? You know, if you have this tendency, getting the sense, getting aware of it, and then actually figuring out how you can deal with it. Uh, and then, you know, when it comes to explicit racists, we have solutions like naming and shaming, um, which the media is incredibly good at doing, and we just saw that happen. But what do you do about the part of implicit racism that is imparted by the society in which you live, which has stereotypes all shot through it? And I felt like we didn't hear enough about I mean, and maybe it's because it's the hardest thing, but I felt like we really didn't, you know, we only scratched the tip of that. Yeah, I mean, when I asked Dave about it, you know, his answer was essentially, it's complicated. Uh, and there's and other researchers that work on it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he and, deferred. And, but he deferred. But, but he's exactly right, too, in that, you know, this is something that is a major problem in our society that has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so it's not going to get solved overnight. And of course, whenever we do try to make some kind of societal changes, like affirmative action, for example, is one example, 
uh, you know, there's a, there's a huge backlash and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, and there's, there's controversy surrounding that. So, you know, I really think that, you know, the, the children are our future and we really need to make sure that we provide an environment for them that does not discriminate on the basis of these kinds of superficial things. And, and hopefully as we become more and more globally connected, um, it will become less and less of an issue. So I, you know, I had done some research on my own on this topic a while back, and I just want to, just to give an indication of how powerful these kinds of biases are, that did something that didn't come up in the show. So here's a psychology paper called Implicit and Explicit Prejudice in the 2008 Presidential Election. I don't know if you were aware huh. of this one. And no. basically, they compared where people scored on these two measures with how they actually voted, okay? Hmm. And... Lo and behold, you'll be shocked to learn that, first of all, the explicit racists, they were much more likely to vote for the white guy, John McCain, over Barack Obama. Okay, no shock there. But then there's the implicit prejudice people, and they had the control for explicit prejudice to make sure they were actually isolating the effect of implicit. And so it turned out they were less likely to vote for Obama, too, but they weren't more likely to vote for McCain Actually, once you isolated this um, implicit bias, those are the people that w- didn't vote at all or preferred a third-party candidate, but they still caused Barack Obama to lose votes. Huh. So does this mean that Ralph Nader has a chance? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, no, it, it, it again means that we need to be more conscious of our implicit biases. Absolutely. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And I just want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds was sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors, and me, to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and many more, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams or anything like that. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. Highly recommended. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And remember, that's where you can see the video of the game I mentioned. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And we've been getting a lot of great emails, so thank you so much, and, and please keep them coming. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.